Good evening! Welcome, you wonderful, wonderful geeky people, to another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And I am going to try and keep everything positive and upbeat this week. I have not had a brilliant week myself, and so I am focusing on the positivity in the hope of making not just me, but the rest of the world feel better. And fortunately, there is some good news to share. Okay, so news, good news, amazing news, possibly the best news I've ever reported in this segment of the show. Yes, geeky news that is actually unequivocally good. Now, you may be wondering what the best sci-fi TV series ever was. And I know some of you will have opinions about this. Star Trek is going to get mentioned. Uh, Some of the Star Wars series of later years may be mentioned. Someone's bound to bring up the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, although somehow not the original. Doctor Who, clearly, is going to be a front, front runner. And if you think that any of those are the best TV science fiction show there's ever been, well, I have some sympathy. And you know what? If you're bringing up Blake 7, seriously, you're as old as me. All, all of those would be great competitors. In that fight. But seriously, there can be only one winner. In all its flawed, ridiculous magnificence, the greatest TV science fiction show of all time is, of course, Babylon 5. The one that most people haven't even heard of. Get me wrong, I love Star Trek. I love The Mandalorian. I love Andor. I love Obi-Wan and all the other Star Wars nonsense that we've had. I love Doctor Who. Doctor Who is not just part of my life, it's a fundamental part of my being. But when I was a 20-something in the 90s, just graduated and beginning to make my way in the world, it was not any of those shows that I would call my best mate in London up on a Wednesday morning to discuss. No. It was Babylon 5. Because, okay, look. If you're unfamiliar with what what B5 is, B5 was a five-season-long show that was hideously treated by the network. I mean, other shows have had it worse. I mean, Firefly clearly had it much, much worse. But it was a show that had a real vision. Its creator, J. Michael Straczynski, is a visionary writer. And he went to the networks with this idea, a five-year-long show, emulating perhaps the original five-year mission of the original Starship Enterprise. Just like the original Starship Enterprise, B5 didn't get the full five years, or at least they didn't think they were going to. What happened was this. Straczynski, can't say his name now, Let's just call him JMS. That's what everybody calls him anyway. JMS took his idea to Warner and Warner said, yeah, fine, go for it. And the idea is that Babylon 5 is a space station in, well, space, obviously, but in a neutral area of space, a space which nobody lays claim to in a galaxy full of alien civilizations, including our own, which kind of fight a lot. There have been many, many wars 
Some involved humans, some didn't. But there have been many, many wars across the galaxy. B5 is there as a diplomatic base where humans and other alien species can work out their differences peacefully. It's a home away from home, if you like. And yes, I am quoting the opening credits now. It's the last best hope for peace. And against that backdrop, we follow the, the human crew that runs the station. It is an Earth Alliance station. And there are some fantastic characters, which we'll perhaps talk about later. And against all of that, there's a real conflict brewing between two of the oldest civilizations the galaxy has ever experienced. And everybody is about to get caught in the middle. Now, that story should have taken five years to tell. In fact, they told it in four because they didn't think they were going to get their fifth series. So they crammed everything they needed to get in to finish the story off into season four. And then Warner said, oh, yeah, you can have a fifth season. Why not? And then they had nothing to put in season five. And season five of Babylon 5 is spectacularly bad as a result. And yeah, B5 is not in any way perfect. It's from the mid-90s. It was one of the first major shows to really lean into CGI, not just for special effects, but for sets. It had virtual sets. It was one of the first shows where almost everything was shot in front of a green screen. And, oh boy, can you tell looking now. It, honestly, I was there. In the early, early to mid-90s, the special effects on B5 looked spectacular. Now, not so much. But nevertheless, I loved it. In spite of the clunky dialogue, which is really seriously some of the worst dialogue you'll ever hear on television, uh, up to and including the immortal words of Captain John Sheridan when he confronts the two ancient species of alien and, I'm not even kidding, says, Now get the hell out of our galaxy! Yeah. You know, it wasn't all great, although Bruce Boxleitner did deliver that with um, a straight face and some aplomb. Now, the thing about B5, and the reason I think it's the greatest science fiction TV show of all time, is because of its flaws. Because you can pick holes in it all day, but it is so much greater than the sum of its parts. Its vision is so clear. And its ideas were so amazing. And, you know, JMS tried, he really tried to keep that universe going. B5 finished after the fifth season. There was still an appetite for more. There were two series spinning out of B5 that tried their best, bless them. There was the ill-fated crusade, which has a terrible name for a start, uh, and which was to feature a ship cruising the galaxy, looking for a cure to a plague that Earth had been infected with as a result of the, the events at the end of Babylon 5. Uh, it would have been very like Star Trek Voyager, really. And then there was Babylon 5 Legend of the Rangers, which was to involve a group of ah, warrior monks, I guess you'd call them, which the the the, the, the rangers, uh, the Anlashok in Minbari, don't ask, um, Sort of, you know, going around and righting wrongs. And that would have been a spaceboard Lord of the Rings, basically. Uh, the 
Lord of the Rings having the same initials as Legend of the Rangers was not a coincidence. Neither took off. Um, and I've seen the episodes they made of Crusade. They're all right. I haven't seen any of Legends of the Rangers. But I miss B5. I miss B5. I miss ringing my best mate in London every Wednesday to discuss the latest episode, even though we haven't done that now for, what, 25 years? But it was great. It was brilliant. And unfortunately, as is so often the way, there can't really be any more. I mean, first of all, the story is done. They really did finish the story. And in any case, the actors who played some of the characters, some of the key characters, are no longer with us. Jerry Doyle, who played security chief Garibaldi, has died. Um, the, the wonderful Andreas Katsulas, uh, who played the visionary character of Jacquard, uh, one of the characters who has one of the best redemption character arcs in storytelling. I mean, seriously, it's a huge redemption arc that takes him from being a, a sort of cackling villain to a wise sage. It's it's a remarkable thing. Um, Peter Jurisic as, as his foil, uh, Londo Malari, uh, also just stunning performances. Uh, yeah, and yes, the dialogue sucked, but you know, but they're all gone. Um, Stephen Biggs, who was uh, the Doctor, uh, he he's passed away now. Uh, so many uh, of the actors, uh, Mira Furlan, who played um, Ambassador Delenn, she she has died. You know, they're all gone. So you couldn't get them back to play their, their, their themselves, even if they wanted to. Yeah, it's it's all gone. But that doesn't stop animation and jms has announced that there will indeed be a new animated film uh from the babylon 5 franchise and we are bringing back some of the originals uh bruce boxleitner as captain john sheridan he may not be a captain anymore he may have been promoted uh claudia christensen as susan ivanova who is honestly one of my favorite characters of all time Peter Jurassic as, as Lando Malari, Bill Moomy as Lanier, Tracy Scoggins as, as Captain Elizabeth Lockley, Patricia Tolman as the telepath Lita Alexander. They're all coming back. It's been written by Strazinski, JMS himself. Um, now that means that the dialogue might suck a little bit, but it doesn't matter because it'll still be amazing. The vision will be there. Uh, Matt Peters, uh, who... Uh, directed uh, Batman and Superman Battle of the Super Sons is directing. I'm not familiar with his work. Uh, Rick Morales serving as supervising producer uh, with Sam Richards doing some executive production work. Uh, we're also getting um, Zathras and Jeffrey Sinclair. Now, I'm not sure about the the actor who originally played Zathras, um, but the, the actor who originally played um, Jeffrey Sinclair, uh, he is no longer with us. Um, Anthony Hansen is doing the voice of Michael Garibaldi. Um, Dr. Stephen Franklin, uh, again, you know, the actor has, has passed away. Uh, he's being voiced by Phil Lamar. Uh, and Peter Michael uh, is voicing David Sheridan, who I think is John Sheridan's dad. Um, Andrew Morgado is taking on Jacquard, and Rebecca Reedy is doing the voice of Delenn. It's a project I'm seriously looking forward to. It could suck. It could. 
And I am going to be quite critical of this. Because if you're going to do B5, you've got to get it right. But the original people are on board. And I'm hopeful. I'm genuinely hopeful that this will work. Uh, Straczynski. Yay! Nailed it. Straczynski. Said it twice. He's plugging the film, uh, saying that it's raucous, it's heartfelt, it's non-stop, and crucially, a love letter to the fans. If that's true, I'm looking forward to writing back. Because... I am a huge, huge fan. And that is hugely good news. And I am as excited as a kid on Christmas morning. Uh, no details yet as to actually when it will be available. Animation is notoriously time consuming to produce. But it's good news. I'm really excited. So there you go. Listen to me. I've gone all high pitched. I'm very happy. Anyway, someone's about to spoil it. So let's move on and see what else is going on. And I'm pleased to say more good stuff. Now, what you've just heard, all that B5 stuff, that was recorded nearly a week ago as I record this on Thursday the 18th of May. And I have just scrapped a large chunk of what was going to be in this week's show. It'll probably make it into next week's show because yesterday, the 17th of May, they announced the shortlist, the nominations for the Eisner Awards. And the Eisners are... My favourite awards. So what are the Eisners? Well, if you're not into comics, you probably don't know. You've probably never heard of them. And that's a shame because they're great. The Eisners are usually sold to people as, oh, they're the comics version of the Oscars. And I suppose they are. But I don't know. Somehow we seem to have much less controversy around the Eisners. And I don't know whether that is just because... Well, comics are a friendlier bunch on the whole, if you ignore one particular small but vocal section of fandom. Or whether it's just because the stakes are lower, because, you know, it's comics. and <laughs> There's a lot less money involved. I, th- I don't think the egos are any smaller, but I don't. I, there's an awful lot less money involved. What's great about the Eisners is it's a really good way every year of taking the temperature of the water, seeing what actually is out there and what's good. and Honestly, in my line of work, I'm in a run a comic shop, shop after all, knowing what's good and seeing whether the judgments I made about what was going to be good were right or not is well, it's kind of fun. So who is up for the Eisners this year? Well, I'm glad you asked, because clearly I'm intending on spending at least the next 10 minutes telling you. Now, the big the big winners in the nominations are Image. Uh, they are by far outnumbering everybody else in in terms of number of nominations. So what are the Eisners? Well, glad you asked. The Eisners, they're often called the Comics Oscars, and I suppose they are. But I don't know. The stakes seem lower. The egos seem smaller. I think it's just because, well, it's comics, and comics is a much smaller world. And perhaps, perhaps, I certainly like to think that comics is full of nicer people. Uh, Now, I'm not going to go through every single category because you won't have heard. Most of you won't have heard of most of the people involved, most of the books involved. Um, Actually, I will tell you what all the categories are, uh, but I'll only tell you the ones that I think I've got anything interesting to say. I'll I'll tell you about the ones that I've got anything interesting to say about. Um, I should stay right up front. I have made some very ill-advised career choices in my life. Quitting teaching to own a comic store was one of those. But 
the big bonus from that particular ill-advised career choice is that I get to vote in the Eisners. So I get some say on this. And that makes me excited, too. Um, so who are the leaders of the pack here? Uh, I think Image Comics, which is probably the biggest publisher that isn't Marvel or DC. I, I, I can't call them the biggest indie anymore because they really are part of the establishment now. But they are responsible for some of the best comic series out there. Of all the publishers, they probably treat their creators the best. I think that's probably uncontroversial. Uh, and it shows. I mean, they are leading the field with 20 individual nominations for comics from Image uh, and six shared nominations. DC follow on with 11 solo nominations and five shared. Uh, then we've got Fantagraphics, which is a genuine indie publisher with 13 nominations. And then with just nine, Marvel and Dark Horse uh, it sort of bring up the best of the rest. Uh, and then Abrams Publishing, again, a quite a small concern, have seven and one shared. Drawn on Quarterly, which has been around forever and is, is a real proper indie publisher, has six, as does uh, Z2, which is a publisher I was not familiar with until the awards came out. Uh, Troubled IDW has five nominations. First, second has four. Uh, Penn State University stroke Graphic Mundi has four. Uh, Blaze Publishing has three and one shared. Humanoids, which is one of the great European publishers, has three nominations and one shared. Andros McMeal has three. Uh, Two Morrows has three. Viz Media, which is a manga publisher, has three. Do not confuse them with the British comic Viz. Uh, and Boom! And you have to say it like that because they have an exclamation point after their name. Has two nominations and one shared. Uh, and uh, there's another 33 companies or individuals who have one nomination each. So what are the categories? Well, best short story, uh, best single issue or one shot, best continuing series, best limited series, best new series, best publication for early readers, that's kids up to the age of eight, best publication for kids between nine and 12, best publications for teens between 13 and 17, because 18 year olds and 19 year olds don't count, uh, best humour publication, best anthology, best reality based work, best graphic memoir, best graphic album, that's a new graphic album, best graphic album that's been reprinted, Best Adaptation from Another Medium, Best US Edition of International Material, Best US Edition of International Material from Asia, Best Archival Collection or Project for Strips, Best Archival Collection or Project for Comic Books, uh, at least 20 years old, uh, Best Writer, Best Writer Stroke Artist, Best Penciler Stroke Inker or Penciler Stroke Inker Team, Best Painter Stroke Multimedia Artist on Interior Art, Best Cover Artist for Multiple Covers, Best Colouring, Best Lettering, Best Comics Related for Periodical or Journalism, Best Comics Related Book, Best Academic or Scholarly Work, uh, Best Publication Design, Best Webcomic, and Best Digital Comic. Wow. Uh, and then there's also the um, 2023 Eisner Hall of Fame. Judges will select 15 people for that. Uh, voters will select four more inductees. Um, so... That's the that's the line. Clearly, I'm not going to go into every single one. Just as just as you never find out who the best key grip is in the Oscars, um, it's not that the less well known and less understood categories are any less important to the industry. They're not. It's just that people don't know who these people are, and I'm not going to spend time, your time, telling you stuff that you've got no interest in. Uh, I am going to highlight a couple of categories though. 
Uh, best short story. Uh, the nominees here are The Beekeeper's Due by uh, Jimmy Sharp and Deborah Santos from Scott Snyder Presents Tales from the Cloakroom. Finding Batman by Kevin Conroe and Jay Bone from DC Pride 2022. Good Morning by Christopher Cantwell and Alex Linz from Moon Knight Black, White and Blood Issue 4 from Marvel. Silent All These Years by Margaret Atwood and David Mack from Tori Amos Little Earthquakes from Z2 Publishing. And You Get It by Jonathan Hickman and Marco Cicchetto uh, from Amazing Fantasy 1000. That's from Marvel Comics. Now, the reason I'm highlighting that is because of Finding Batman by Kevin Conroy and Jay Boyne. Uh, if you don't know Kevin Conroy, uh, you've heard his voice. If you've watched any animated version of Batman that's been made in pretty much the last 30 years, or you have played most of any of most of the Batman video games, you have heard Kevin Conroy's voice. He's the guy who started Batman saying, I'm Batman. Except Kevin Conroy does it much better than I ever could. And for many, for me, certainly, Kevin Conroy is the definitive voice of Batman. And he died last year. Uh, and it was, it, I was really, it was, it was a shock to me. I, I didn't know he'd been ill. And just before he died, he had a very short story called Finding Batman in the DC Pride anthology for 2022. And it was such a moving story about how getting the gig as Batman changed his, not just changed his life. I mean, clearly it did that, but it also, it also gave him a sense of validation. You know, here he was uh, a gay man with, or having had to face all of the issues that a gay man of his age had had to face through his career, but also through his life. And then almost on the last shake of the dice, he got the Batman gig. And it clearly meant a huge amount to him. It's a wonderful story. I can't recommend it highly enough. I hope it gets reprinted a lot because I want as many people as possible to read it. Because I think we all feel the way Kevin Conroy felt about Batman, about something. You're gay, straight, male, female. I, I, I think the, the sense of finding something that can define you, that you can define yourself by, I think that happens to all of us. And, in, and it's an important moment when it does. And I, I think for that reason, it was such a powerful story. I don't know if it's going to win. I, I suspect it will. I suspect affection for Kevin Conroy. Uh, coupled with the fact that it's a, it's a stonking story that a lot of people read. I mean, DC Pride is a high-profile book. I, I, I think it stands a pretty good chance. I'll be surprised if it doesn't win. And I will be cheering it on. Um, then there's the best single issue. Now, this is an interesting thing, because comics are mostly a serialised medium. You know, the, the, the basic business model of comics still is monthly comic books. So to pick out an issue of a comic is an odd thing to do in many ways. The nominations here are Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler, Mary Jane and Black Cat Beyond, Moon Knight Black, White and Blood, Issue 3, Star Trek 400, and A Vicious Circle, Book 1. Now, of those, the only one I've read, is well, the two I've read, are Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler, and Moon Knight, Black, White and Blood 3. Uh, they're both excellent. 
Uh, Moon Knight is an anthology. Uh, Batman One Bad Day is not. It's part of a part of a, a limited series and will be getting mentioned later on. Um, they're both great. I can't call it. I suspect one of the books I haven't read will win that one. We'll see. Uh, and then best continuing series. That is to say, ongoing you know series that is designed to just to just keep going. Uh, the nominations here are Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky, um, Marco Cicchetto and Raphael De La Tour. The Department of Truth by James Tini IV and Martin Simmons. Philadelphia by Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander. The Nice House on the Lake by James Tini IV and Alvaro Martinez Bueno. Nightwing by Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. And She-Hulk by Rainbow Rowell, uh, Rogue Antonio, is it Roge Antonio, uh, Luca Marcia and uh, Takeshi Miyazawa. Now, of that list, probably the most interesting two in terms of they're not like anything else you'll ever read are Department of Truth uh, by James Tinian and Martin Simmons from Image Comics and The Nice House on the Lake by um, ooh, James Tinian IV uh, and Alvaro Martinez Bueno from DC. Department of Truth is kind of like a, a real conspiracy theory based thing um, about what's really going on in the US government. Nice House on the Lake is a, an end of the world, very claustrophobic horror horror comic, I guess horror, horror sci-fi. A bunch of friends are invited to their mutual friend's lake house uh, for the summer. When they get there, they discover that the lake house is all that's left. The rest of the world has been destroyed. And it's a really claustrophobic book. It, it sort of examines the, I can't remember which philosopher it was, but he said, was it Descartes? He said that hell was spending eternity in a room with your friends. Um, nice House on the Lake really examines that brilliant piece of writing by James Tinian. Uh, I I never thought of it as an ongoing, having said that. I always thought of it as a limited series, so I'm not sure it's in the right category. Then we've got Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky. Um, Zdarsky, uh, Cicchetto uh, and Dilator are all leaving Daredevil shortly, so this will be a nice, nice sort of bow that they could take, winning an Eisner. Uh, their, their work on Daredevil has been amazing. Uh, She-Hulk, I think, is an outsider just because it's not a particularly high-selling book. I've loved She-Hulk. I've raved about Shulky before. Uh, I think Rainbow Rowell has brought some brilliant writing to the character. Uh, the artwork has been amazing. Uh, I, and I love the character. I love the characterization in this series. Um, I think my favourite is Nightwing uh, by Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo from DC. I have said many times on this show that Nightwing is easily the best superhero comic out there at the moment. Probably the best thing that DC is putting out. Um, it's the characterization combined with the artwork, combined with the storytelling, and how all of that fits together for me. Now, it was nominated in this category last year and didn't win. And I wonder if it, it's almost too popular for its own good. In that it's, I've seen some online discussion about how overrated Nightwing is. Uh, now, such discussion is clearly misguided, but it's clearly becoming quite fashionable to hate on Nightwing. So it might be a victim of its own success in that regard. We're going to skip over a few, um, a few categories now uh, and leap up to what I guess would be the big high profile awards. Um, so we're going to take a look at 
the best writer artist categories. And we'll start with uh, best penciler, inker, or penciler, inker team. Um, basically, penciling is the person who does the the art in pencil. The inker is the person who inks over it. Some people ink themselves. Some people work with an inker. Uh, and the nominations are Jason Sean Alexander for Philadelphia and Nita Hall's Nightmare Blog, Alvaro Martinez Bueno for The Nice House on the Lake, Sean Phillips for Follow Me Down and The Ghost in You, Bruno Redondo for Nightwing, and Greg Smallwood for The Human Target. Now, it's obviously best artist, best penciler, best inker, all of these. These are very visual prize, very visual things, and uh, therefore not exactly radio gold. Uh, just trust me. The art we're talking about is all amazing. If I had to pick a favourite, I would go for Bruno Redondo for Nightwing, just because of the way, not just the way his art looks amazing, because it does, but also the way he uses that art to tell stories. I think I think he's the strongest graphic storyteller in the bunch. Um, I think Sean Phillips is in with a very, very good shout, because Sean Phillips is also amazing. Uh, but yeah, we will see on that one uh then there's best painter stroke multimedia artist for interior art um lieber mayo for a vicious circle uh felix delep for animal castle daria schmidt for the monstrous dreams of mr providence uh sana takeda for the night eater she eats the night uh zoe thorogood for rain and thomas woodruff uh for francis frothbart the tale of a, of a fastidious feral now I'm only mentioning this character, this this category, because Zoe Thurgood's work on Rain was so amazing. Uh, you will, if you're a regular listener, have heard me rave about Zoe Thurgood's work on Rain uh, when Rain was coming out as a book. Um, and Zoe Thurgood herself, I think, is a thoroughly brilliant person. So that would be my favourite. Uh, the competition is strong, though. It's a very, very strong field. Uh, but if I had my say, and I do get to vote in this, um, I would I would very strongly be going for Zoe Thurgood. Uh, then there's Best Cover Artist. Now, they do say you can't judge a book or a comic by its cover. And I say, that's nonsense. That's what the cover's for. Uh, you pick up a comic, particularly comics, actually, because of how good the cover looks. And so, you know, these people are amongst the most important people in the economics of comics. If people don't pick up a comic and look at it if the cover doesn't catch their eye. So the nominations are Jen Bartel for She-Hulk, Bruno Redondo for Nightwing, Alex Ross for Astro City, that was then, Fantastic Four and Black Panther, uh, Sana Takeda for Monstrous, and Zoe Thorogood for Joe Hill's Reign. Now, there are... I would have to say there are three front runners here that it's really hard to see past, and then two people who ought to win it anyway. Um, so I genuinely can't call this category. I know who I vote, who I'm going to vote for, but I I can't call this category. And even though I know who I'm going to vote for, if that person wasn't in the running, I could just as easily vote for any of the others. So Jen Bartel, beautiful, beautiful art that Jen Bartel produces. Uh, she's nominated for She-Hulk, but her covers for so many other things have also been amazing. Uh, she has to be 
yeah, a very strong contender. Then there's Bruno Redondo. His covers for Nightwing have been a phenomenon. And again, if he doesn't get it, I suspect it might be the Nightwing factor kicking in again. And then there's Alex Ross for Astro City. That was then Fantastic Four, Black Panther and so many other things. And in the case of Alex Ross, his entire career, Ross was perhaps he was the first person in American comics, certainly to take that fully painted style and bring it to comics. And he was grand and groundbreaking when he did it. Now, I've, I've been quite vocal about not being a fan of Alex Ross as a comics artist because I don't think his work moves. And um, that's A, not a popular opinion, and B, an opinion that takes quite a lot of explaining. So we'll move on. Uh, I do say that Alex Ross is almost the perfect cover artist. And uh, honestly, he's, he's, he's such a giant. He's very hard to see past. He's very hard to beat. Um. The two that, that are bubbling under, uh, Sana Takeda for Monstrous. Monstrous is a beautiful looking book. And uh, Takeda generally does the interior art on Monstrous as well. It doesn't get the recognition I think it deserves. I think it's better than the praise that gets heaped on it. Uh, and it is, you know, it is a widely well regarded book. Uh, Takeda is, you know, very well regarded as an artist. Um Perhaps not, not just not quite popular enough to win this kind of award. Uh, then there's Zoe Thorogood. I refer you to my previous comments about Zoe Thorogood. Um, nominated for the covers of Rain as well as for the interiors of Rain. It's such beautiful, delicate, vulnerable work. I think it deserves to win uh, every bit as much as any of the others. Uh, but I, as I say, I genuinely can't call it Thorogood uh, as will suffer more than most, I think, for being not particularly well-known as a name. Because, I mean, she's just starting out. She's, you know, she's not been in the business all that long. Yeah, and she's up against Alex Ross. He, he, he's been around for 30-odd years. It's such a strong feel. You genuinely, yeah, you can't look at a lineup of the work of these people and, and immediately say, well, that one's better than all the others. Because... It's just such, such a strong field. And that's probably easily, easily the hardest fought category. And then, and then we've got the uh, the, the real glamour awards. Um, best writer and best writer artist are probably the, the for me Devil Glamour awards. Uh, so best. Best Writer Artist, we have Sarah Anderson for Cryptic Club, uh, Kate Beaton for Ducks, Two Years in the Ozans, Esbay for The Pass, uh, Jinji Ito for Black Paradox, The Liminal Zone, and Zoe Thorogood for It's Lonely at the Centre of the Earth. Now, Thorogood is nominated a lot, and it really would be a real travesty if she didn't win one of these. And honestly... I think Best Writer Artist is the one that she deserves the most. It's Lonely at the Centre of the Earth is an astounding book. It's it's vulnerable. It's, it's, it's an autobiographical piece of work um, about Thorogood's experiences, well, living as Zoe Thorogood, actually, and dealing with various issues that she had to deal with over a, over a year, basically. It's a year out of the artist's life. It's 
heart-crushingly honest. She makes herself so vulnerable in the writing, but then the art mirrors that. There's such a beautiful delicacy of line. Uh, she's in a very strong field again. Um, but I really, really want Thurgood to win this one. I, I, I think, I think she thoroughly deserves it. Uh, and I, I cannot recommend It's Lonely at the Centre of the Earth enough to people. So there's that. And then best writer. Uh, Grace Ellis for Flung Out of Space. Tom King for Batman Killing Time. Batman, One Bad Day, Gotham, uh, Gotham City Year One. The Human Target, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow and Love Everlasting. Mark Russell for Travelling to Mars, One Star Squadron, Superman Space, uh, sorry, Superman Space Age, uh, and the Incal Psychoverse. Uh, then James Tinian the Fourth for House of Slaughter, Something Is Killing the Children, Wind, The Nice House on the Lake, The Sandman Universe, Nightmare Country, The Closet, and Department of Truth. And Chip Zdarsky for Stillwater and Daredevil. Again, unbelievably strong. I think perhaps the outlier there is Grace Ellis, not because she's not as good, but because she's not as well known. Um, Tom King, Kip Sadarsky, and James Tinian the Fourth probably benefit a little from being much better known. Uh, Mark Russell, again, like Grace Ellis, perhaps isn't quite as high profile. Um, Tom King, I think, perhaps will suffer because so many people didn't like his run on the main Batman book. But then it's a couple of years since he's done that book now, so. You know, that that may have worn off a little bit. James Tinian, I think, is probably the strongest contender just because his work is so varied and there's so much of it. I mean, House of Slaughter and Something is Killing the Children are related books. Um, and so they're very similar. But they're very different from Wind, which is a, essentially a kid's book. Um, Slaughter and, and Something is Killing the Children and Wind are very different from The Nice House on the Lake. Uh, the Sandman Universe Nightmare Country is different again. The Closet is different again. Uh, the Department of Truth is different again. You know, it's it, so much stuff and it's all so different. I think he really has to be the strong contender, but Chip Zdarsky you would never count out. Uh, well, mostly because he's Chip Zdarsky. So, so those are the runners and riders. Uh, as I say, I do get to vote and indeed have voted. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how I voted. I, I think you can probably guess in a couple of, in a couple of categories. But um, when the Eisners are announced at the San Diego Comic-Con uh, this coming July, is it? Um, I will let you know how I did and how the people I voted for fared. have to say, if my preferences for Eurovision the other weekend are anything to go by, anyone I like is probably doomed. OK, very quickly on to other news, because other things have been happening and I have spent rather longer than I meant to on the Eisners, if I'm honest. And other news is perhaps, well, less encouraging. Um, there's been a bit of a storm on social media again, this time about spoilers and attitudes, particularly when it comes to Marvel Comics. Now... Marvel, as you know, are the publishers of Spider-Man. They're also the publishers of Ms. Marvel, clues in the name. Now, Ms. Marvel is something of a hot-button character in that she is immensely popular 
with a certain section of the audience. I would include myself in that section. She's also spectacularly unpopular with a certain section of the audience. When she was first created, when Kamala Khan was first created to be Ms. Marvel, there was a huge backlash because she was replacing Carol Danvers. And Carol Danvers was tall, slim, blonde, white, and wore a very, very skimpy costume. Uh, beach wear, I think, is probably the best way of describing it. She fought crime in high heels and a bikini, is what actually happened. Um, she was replaced by Kamala Khan, who was short, brown, Muslim, and culturally appropriate, which meant she was a very not revealing at all kind of costume, as is appropriate, not just for her religion, but also her age. She is a teenager. And honestly, middle-aged comics artists should not be drawing scantily clad teenage girls. It's icky. So there was some backlash to that. And there is still a fairly vocal corner of comics fandom that dislikes anything to do with Ms. Marvel because they're racist, honestly. Um, there is also a group of people, a fairly sizable group of people, who don't like the Ms. Marvel because they don't like the stories. And that's fine. That's not racist. That's just not liking the stories. That's cool. If it's not for you, it's not for you. And because of that background, there's always going to be an issue. You know, she's always going to be followed by controversy as a character. Now Marvel seem to have done something, frankly, mind-bendingly deft. Um, they're killing the character. And they're killing the character not in her own book, but in the pages of Spider-Man. On the whole, people are not happy. Um, you'll notice I didn't sound the spoiler horn before I told you that Ms. Marvel was going to die. Uh, that's because Marvel have already done it. They announced it on social media. Officially, they actually said, Ms. Marvel is going to die. Now, why would you do that? Why? That's a massive spoiler. And uh, yeah, people are not happy about that. Even people who don't care about the character are not happy that the story has been spoiled in that way. And I, I don't quite understand why Marvel have done it, except to generate that le the level of outrage that they've generated. And I hate that I'm adding on to it. But there you go. That's life in radio, I guess. Um, another reason people are not happy with it is this is getting to be a habit of Spider-Man. Um, women die around Peter Parker all the time. And mostly it seems to be done so that he can either feel bad or be angry and need to avenge their deaths. Now, there's a name for that. Uh, it's called fridging. And it's rather too common and it's lazy writing. Where you take a female character that is important to a male character, you kill them, and then that drives the male character's arc. That's all too common. Uh, it's called fridging because Gail Simone called it out. Uh, many, many years ago now, uh, she wrote an article about an issue of Green Lantern in which Green Lantern's long-term girlfriend was killed, dismembered and left in his fridge. And, you know, the idea, the only reason that that happened to that character was so that Green Lantern could therefore be sad and angry. Some people are cross about this because they're taking one of the characters that really is kind of a linchpin of Marvel's diversity in characters 
and killing her off in such a cavalier fashion. And I can live with that, actually. I'm not happy about it, but I can live with it. Now, what makes me angry is the sheer cynicism of it. Because as many people have commented on social media in response to the outrage, guys, relax, it's comics. She's not going to stay dead for all that long. And she isn't. She really, really isn't. I'm not entirely sure how they're going to bring her back, although I've got an idea, and I'll tell you about that in a minute as well, because that also makes me cross. Uh, But she's particularly not going to stay dead, because Kamala Khan is going to be in a movie at the end of the year. Seriously, are we suggesting that Marvel is not going to have a comic that features Kamala Khan around about the time that The Marvels comes out in cinemas? Because actually, the comics have been really bad at cashing in on the popularity of the movies. But they're not that stupid. When Multiverse of Madness came out, Doctor Strange was dead. And, ooh, Doctor Strange came back just in time. Well, not just in time to capitalise on the popularity of Multiverse of Madness, because it wasn't very popular. And to be fair, the Marvels might also not be that popular, because that seems to be the trend with Marvel movies at the moment. But no, they're going to try. They're going to try. So that only leaves, well, how are they going to bring it back really quickly without it? See, Well, they aren't going to bring it back really quickly without seeming crass. But how are they going to bring the character back really fast? Well, that also lies, I think, in something else that's going to make me angry. Come on, Khan, in the comics, is an inhuman, which means she is descended from a group of people who were given extra special DNA by aliens generations ago. And if you carry the gene from that genetic interference and you are then exposed to something called pterogen gas, that gene will activate and you will develop powers. Sometimes they're convenient powers, sometimes they're really not. But that's a thing that happens in the Marvel Universe. Now, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Kamala Khan is not an Inhuman. The Inhumans do not exist in the Cinematic Universe. They tried to do an Inhumans movie. It was not a success. So, in the Cinematic Universe, it's been very, very clearly signposted that she's a mutant, which is to say, like the X-Men. She has a mutated human gene that will give her superpowers. Now, what I suspect they're going to do is reveal, after Kamala has, in heavy air quotes, died, they're going to reveal that she is, in fact, a mutant. Maybe she'll be a mutant and an inhuman. There's no reason why those two things can't be happened to the same person. Maybe they'll just decide that, oh no, she was mistaken all of that time about being an inhuman. She was exposed to pterogen gas, but actually triggered her mutant gene, not an inhuman gene. So she's in fact a mutant. Why does that matter? Well, one of the things that I don't like that they've done with the X-Men in the comics is the X-Men can't die anymore. There's a way of regenerating mutants now so that when a mutant dies, they can essentially be regrown on an island somewhere. It's actually not as dumb as I've just made that sound, but I don't like it as a concept. I think it takes all peril out of the out of the stories. And the only time they tried to do something that I thought was interesting with it, they didn't go anywhere with it. So, yeah. But if they say that Kamala Khan is a mutant, 
then she can come back from the dead very easily and very quickly. And she will then fit more tightly with the Marvel Cinematic way of doing things. And do you know what? I really hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm being overly cynical, but I bet I'm not. So, yeah, there's that. Anyway, we will move away from comics now and talk about something that will make me throff at the mouth just that little bit less. Only a little bit. I'm not going to play the space jingle here because this story doesn't quite involve getting to space, but it almost does. Basically, somebody is offering the opportunity for somebody who is very, very, very rich indeed to eat a Michelin-starred meal on the edge of space. Now, I both love and hate everything about this story because at the one level, it's ridiculous. Come on. All of that expensive food taken to an altitude of 25 kilometres, which is why it's the edge of space, not space itself. What a waste. What a waste of effort. What a waste of everything. But on the other hand, you would, wouldn't you? I would. I definitely would. Wouldn't you? Come on. Yes, of course you would. Now, I, I, first of all, I'm a foodie, all right? One of the many things I'm geeky about is food. I love food. Good, fancy, plain, don't much care, but as long as it's good, I adore food. Uh, me and my wife have been known to drive over 100 miles for lunch. In fact, we have been known to drive significantly further than that for lunch, now I think about it. Um, not just occasionally, but a lot. Because, honestly, there's very little in my life that's more important than a really good lunch. I have eaten in Michelin-styled restaurants. I have eaten in restaurants that weren't Michelin-styled when I ate there, but very shortly afterwards got their Michelin-style. And I quite like that style of food. Yes, it is ridiculously expensive because it takes so much work. And is it always filling? No. I, honestly, have I enjoyed every meal I've had in a place like that? God, no. But it's about experience. When you're eating food at that level. I mean, I can cook. If all I want is a nice, filling, enjoyable meal, I can make that myself. If I'm going to go out to a restaurant, I need it to have some purpose. You know, maybe I'm just going to go and meet with some friends and have some conversation over a meal. That's fine. I can do that in McDonald's or Five Guys. Other burger joints are available. Or in like a nice little bistro somewhere. But sometimes you just want that Michelin-starred food as spectacle kind of experience and if you're paying a lot of money for a meal and wherever you have a michelin starred style meal you're paying a lot of money for it the restaurant is also important and one of the things that can make a restaurant special is the view and where are you going to get a better view than in a balloon on the edge of space as views from restaurants go that's pretty amazing basically that's what's on offer uh, a guy called Vincent Ferret Diestes, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name and I don't much care, um, is offering the opportunity to sit in a pressurised capsule that will be attached to a stratospheric balloon, which will take you to an altitude of 25 kilometres, which is perhaps the ultimate 
restaurant view. It's a hell of an idea for a date night. I think you have to agree. Um, I think the idea is passengers will get around about an hour and a half at the maximum altitude. Um, but you'll be in the air for about three hours, which is, you know, time for a nice meal and some decent wine. Um, it's space tourism, Jim, but not as we know it. And honestly, I'm quite attracted to the idea. It is, of course, prohibitively expensive. Um, it is going to be around 10,000 euros um, to reserve your ticket. That's just to reserve your ticket. The trip itself, you're looking at about 120,000 euros. Um, and seats from late 2024 into mid 2025 are apparently fully booked. Uh, so somebody's prepared to um, fork out the Wonga. Um, it's offered by a company called Zafanto, who are clearly going into bat against companies like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. Uh, but I think the fact that they're not relying on rockets and not bothering to go into space itself gives them actually a bit of an edge. Because although you can't say, oh, I ate lunch in space, you can say that you've had the most astonishing dining experience without the faff and the risk of sitting on you know several thousand pounds of explosives in order to get yourself into orbit and anyway eating in microgravity is quite difficult i don't think a michelin starred meal would work at really high altitude because once you're in freefall you, you kind of need to stop your steak from drifting across the room Whereas if you're in a balloon, you're still under normal Earth gravity. It's fine. So I think they might have hit a winner. I mean, yes, of course, it's utter nonsense and a total waste of money. But given the things that the super rich spend their money on, then, you know, is it any more of a waste of money than the things they'd be spending their money on anyway? I don't think it is. So, you know... If I had a few hundred thousand euros to spend on date night, I'd probably go for this, to be honest. Sadly, of course, it will remain a fantasy because I'm never having that kind of money. And if I ever did, actually, yeah, let's be honest. I wish I could spend a couple of hundred thousand pounds on, on dinner because if I could, I'd spend it on something else. As a foodie, though, very intrigued to see the menu because I would have thought Having to prepare the meals, or at least assemble the meals, inside a pressurised balloon capsule would put on some fairly interesting limitations. And I'm keen to see how they get around them, frankly. So yeah, I'll be watching this one with interest. Stay tuned for further information. And with that, we are just about out of time. I, I was going to spend some time talking about the new CEO of Twitter, I think I'll put that off for a little bit. Twitter is leaving just a little bit of a nasty taste in my mouth this week. Uh, the muskrat has gone off on some extraordinary anti-Semitic rantings uh, on the Bird app. And yeah, I don't really fancy talking about it much. Although since we bring up the muskrat, footage has emerged of some of the, the debris that was blown in the area surrounding the launch pad of the um, Starship launch. The other week has emerged showing quite large chunks of stuff landing in the sea 
literally miles away from the launch pad. And there are lawsuits now, not against SpaceX as such, but against the Federal Aviation Administration for giving SpaceX a license to launch in those conditions in that location, which is a federally protected nature reserve. Uh, so this actually, you know, the, the blowback from that launch, no pun intended, actually is beginning to look as though it could have some fairly serious consequences, not just for SpaceX, but for companies who are relying on SpaceX to provide heavy lift. It won't affect the Falcon 9s and all of that, but Starship, which is so crucial to the Artemis project, could now be very seriously impacted. Uh, uh, we're not going to do a full thing. You know, we're throwing it in as an, as an afterthought here because we need to wait until more information is available. But you can expect a fairly major piece on Starship coming up in the coming weeks as the effect of the lawsuits becomes clearer. And there we shall bring things to a close. Sorry we're a bit scattershot this week. It's still exam time and I genuinely haven't had as much time to devote to producing the show this week as I normally would. And that's going to be the case for the next couple of weeks until the English exams are out of the way. Which are the joys of being even tangentially involved in education in this country right now. Hopefully next week I will have more time to record things in advance so that I'm not just dealing with the news on Thursday. And of course the Eisners won't have broken next week. Uh, so next week actually would be better just because quite a lot of next week's show is already recorded because I recorded it for this week's show and then dumped it for the Eisners. So there's that. And if you couldn't have given a monkeys about the Eisners, I am sorry for having taken up your time with all of that. But they are the mo one of the most important things that happens in my year. But next week, we will have a wonderful woman of science. We will have some non-SpaceX related space news. And we will have more news, views and reviews from the wonderful world of geek shows. I might even have actually managed to see Guardians of the Galaxy by then. Because seriously, I've tried to go and see that film three times now. And every time I try and go, something happens. There you are. What are you going to do? Hopefully next week, we'll also have news of Harrogate's other Comic Convention, uh, which is happening actually fairly soon at the Yorkshire Event Centre. It's calling itself the Yorkshire Comic Con, which I think is a bit naughty, but there you go. And um, I know very little about it apart from that, because honestly, they seem to be doing a stealth Comic Con. Their publicity has been woeful. Hopefully I can change that a little bit next week. And next week, I'm also hoping to have news about the big show in November uh, with um, more information about Thought Bubble. And not just my plans for Thought Bubble, but also what other people are doing for what is, without question, the best comics convention in the country. So uh, we'll see you here again for that, too. Obviously, if you have any comments or suggestions or want to say anything about any aspect of the show, uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the email address to get in touch with. Uh, that is also the email address if you want more information from me about anything. Uh, so if you want to know about the Thought Bubble Art Trail or the Autobiographical Comics Project uh, mentioned last week, uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk uh, will find me. And there we are, pretty much out of time. So we will be back next week. Same time, same listening device, unless you choose to use a different one. Until then, please be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe. And above all else, stay geeky. We will see you very soon. Bye.